audio is rolling. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sports Pro Podcast. We have two episodes for you this week. Um, This is the first, the other will be published on Thursday in our usual slot. The reason why we're putting out a special edition of the pod is because this week has seen the release of our annual Ideas to Invest In Now. And joining me today to talk through this year's class is our esteemed technology expert, Steve McCaskill. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me along. Pleasure, pleasure. I hear you've been cheating on us with stream time, but that's fine. We don't need to talk about that too much. Now, Steve, you've been with us for how many editions of Ideas to Invest in now? Uh, this is the third that I've worked on. I think it's a very strong hand for sports and the fact that it shows the depth that we look into this industry and the fact that we track so many different parts of it. And this is like a, a really incredible piece of work because of the fact that these companies are so young. We do a job with picking them out, lifting them up and telling people why they should care. I'm sort of sat a little bit distant from Ideas to Invest in now. What I'd really like to know, and I think what would be really interesting for our listeners, is if you could tell us a little bit how it comes together. Like it's, a, it's an incredible piece of work. If listeners haven't checked it out, it's available on the Sports Pro site now, where you can read profiles on all of the companies named in this year's list, along with other details, and you'll see bits of content around this a week. But Steve, yeah, just give us a sort of peek behind the curtain. I mean, as you say, sports technology is a really interesting space. I, mean, I, I would say that given my title of technology editor and I like, you know, I, I like to earn a living. But it really is, if you, if you look at a lot of the trends in sports business, technology is part of it, whether it's broadcasting, whether it's the management of sports or performance recruitment. It's basically in everything to do with sport. And some of this is served by big technology companies. So, you know, Microsoft, Google, IBM, you know, big enterprise players but the startup ecosystem has a really big part to play especially for things like sport specific technologies sport has been a little bit behind other industries and in how it's in terms of how it's adopted technology so it's not really got decades and years of, of, of sport specific things to draw upon so we look towards these early stage companies to provide some sort of you know innovation and help clubs teams federations even athletes just achieve their goals so Ideas to invest in now. This is the fifth edition. The first was in uh, 2020. Basically, we scour that startup ecosystem and identify 20 early stage companies that are doing something really interesting in the space. They're solving challenges for the consumers or on the business side, and you know, creating creating tangible value. And the list is populated by it's our own internal experience whether that's companies we've interacted with whether we've seen the events just been covering them throughout the year we're all over this you know we, we are doing this day in day out we like to think we know what we're talking about but we also talk to people outside of sports pro towers interesting companies they've seen and we tend to weigh the opinions of those who don't have a vested interest higher than others because you know we don't want to boost people's <laughs> investments for no reason and then I think there's a degree of geographical spread where we can, you know, there's lots of little pockets of sports tech around the world. And we want to reflect that they're solving different challenges, taking things from different perspectives. There's 20 ideas to invest in now. And when we say invest, we don't necessarily mean financially. We just mean your time, your resources, things you should be keeping an eye on moving forward and, and companies that we, we think are going to have a big influence over sport in the coming years. Does this mean that you are ultimately the gatekeeper of the ideas to invest in now list? You're the man who gets to decide that final 20. And if there is one company that sits outside it and you've got to make the call, you're the man that does it? 
no one man should have that much power for ideas to invest in. But I, do, I am very invested in ideas to invest in. Right. I think that tells you all you need to know. Let's have a look at this year's list a little bit. Rather than going through each of the companies in this year's list one by one, which might be a little bit of a laborious process, how about, Steve, you tell us some of the trends this year and how some of the names on the list fit into them? Because we've been doing this for, for five years, and personally I've been covering the space a bit longer than that as well, you do start to see patterns emerge. Certain strands of technology that are that they're a hot topic one year, there's a lot that very similar companies and it sort of fades away either because one or two companies have become dominant or the idea has petered out or they're trying to find a market for it and i think this year there are a couple of trends that are quite obvious stadium and venue has been quite prominent and that's not just in the make of the final 20 actually i'm going to say in terms of the the startups we have been tracking throughout the year and i think the reasons for that are fairly obvious in that venue operators federations stadium is their main place of business right they want to be as efficient as possible they want to capture data to use it across the rest of the organization and they want to improve the fan experience drive satisfaction and ultimately revenue so it's a really obvious place for them to invest in there's tangible benefits to it and i think we've seen smart stadium technology transform from utopian science fiction visions into something's quite tangible now there's quite a few advanced stadiums out there you look at tottenham hotspur stadium or you know quite a few in america and i think sports organizations in general now see the benefits and i think that's why we're seeing another wave of innovative companies in that space performance is also coming up and i think that's partly through traditional analytical tools but also generative ai the topic we've covered a lot in sports pro it's got a lot of traction in the sports industry and beyond and we're starting to see how that is going to be used in sport it's shifting from an experimental phase into something more tangible well we've been looking at that performance again performance tools it might not necessarily be sports but everything is kind of sports biz when you think about it recruitment has a huge influence on the bottom line a mistake can cost you millions of dollars effectively if you get that wrong at the highest level and to be honest it's some really good technology we should highlight that where we can you know the connected fitness space for example that's got an impact on gym operators other venues there's no true connected fitness startup in there this year but i guess mate, you could call it adjacent i i suppose and and things like grassroots participation youth sports in particular is going to explode in the next couple of years and that's largely fueled by technology so there are a couple of grassroots startups on there again there's a couple of betting and gaming startups on there but they're leaning more towards the gaming side than betting a couple of years ago betting was obviously everywhere because of the legalization of it in, in various u.s states i think you're seeing in the u.s the market mature there a bit. The gold rush is slightly over. It's now towards consolidation and trying to make it work. There's obviously two big players there. There's a couple challenging for relevance. And then a lot of the rights holders are quite mature betting strategies now. So I think that that possibly explains why there's been a drop off, but I don't think that's going to be a permanent trend. I always think, you know, that's going to be a huge revenue driver moving forward. So we'll see some more innovation there moving forward. Just to further that point on the gaming side, we're seeing a bit of innovation in gaming just because it's more than Football Manager, it's more than FIFA. It's, oh sorry, EA Sports FC. I really have to correct myself every single time I talk <laughs> about that. And so we're seeing a bit more diversification in the space. And um, as we'll talk in a second, there's even some people who want to challenge FIFA. Again, EA Sports FC. Again, for all the marketing budget they have in the world, still can't get that right. For <laughs> and I apologize to the good people at EA Sports. So that's another trend. Steve, if we can, I'd like to just unpick one of those trends you were talking about there. 
we could probably spend an hour talking about each of them, but if we're going to dive into one, I'm very interested in the decline of Web3. It's gone from being the buzziest subject in the industry. You couldn't go to a conference and not have a someone trying to shove a Web3 platform or tell you how it was the future of engagement. We like to think we're pretty kind of cross where the industry's at, like broadly outside of just the tech industry and the sports tech industry, the broader sports industry, how it thinks about it. With no kind of Web3 specific or Web3 like primary startups in this year's list, is there like a future for that? What does that look like to you? Well, I wouldn't go as far as to say there's a decline of Web3. Web3 is still very present in the sports industry. There's lots of vendors and, and rights holders working with it. I think the industry is just a bit more aware of Web3, both the positives and the negatives, and therefore it's just not as buzzy a space as it once was. I think the focus is on trying... that Web3 is perhaps a solution trying to find a problem i think people are trying to look beyond that now and trying to incorporate it more organically whether that's through fan engagement or through other purposes so it's still there it's just that it's becoming more considered there's no desire for quick cash grabs because they've seen the negative consequences of that in many cases and also if i'm going to be more cynical i think technology industry moves on all the time right just from one one buzzword to another and i think the hype around generative AI may mean that perhaps those who want to be seen at the forefront of particular technological trends are now shifting towards that. And if I want to be super, super cynical, I would say the Web3 experts become generative AI experts overnight and they're pushing that. And that's not to dismiss either technology or the people working on really good things behind the scenes. I just think that it has moved on ever so slightly in that regard. Mm. I think that's a pretty accurate reflection of where we're at. Yeah, be wary of snake oils for Selman, who were talking to you about NFTs a couple of couple of years ago and are now telling you they can solve all your problems with generative AI, I think is the lesson here. Let's talk about some of the specific names on this year's list. I know you've got a few that you've picked out. Should we call them Steve's selections? <laughs> really struggled for that one. Talk me through your picks. If we go through a, a very focused list of 20 and hyper-focus that into five, maybe. One I'd like to highlight is Carve, which is a London-based startup. They've developed a uh, what's essentially a digital ski platform that combines both wearable tech and software. And so it's designed to make you a better skier. And it was actually founded by someone with a physics background who wants to apply his knowledge to get better at skiing. And so it collects data from these wearables, feeds it into these algorithms this software to create personalized plans let you know where you might be going wrong on the slopes and you can view it via a smartphone and get some feedback one thing that's clever is that you know you can even get audio feedback if you're on the slope wearing earphones so again there's plenty of these sort of coaching platforms coaching wearables for specific sports but i thought this was really interesting it's carved it's uh, a series a still quite early days it's one to watch and it's not something i've really seen before via skiing platform so yeah that was why that's on the list that's kind of in the performance area what were some of the others in different sectors of the sports technology market so if we look at stadium venues there was one called edge sound research which their mission is to transform the audio experience of watching sports either in the stadium or at home and it's quite interesting one of the founders ethan castro is hard of hearing or his hearing difficulties and it's a cause close to his heart i suppose he says that he experienced a lot of audio by sensing vibration and that's part of where the ideas come from they want to transform audio into a multi-sensory experience that's using hardware on you know on, on seats so that you can feel it more they've been working with the nba as part of their launchpad accelerator program 
to get that off the ground. So yeah, I just think it's an interesting way in how you can add another dimension to the live event experience. And of course it could be done at home, but in a live event, one of the things we constantly hear in the sports industry is that you need to make going to an event at least as good as, as being at home, if not better. And I think that's one way you can you can do it. So that was really a notable project from the, from this year's list. We're able to combine a like a technology that actually expands accessibility for fans too, and equalizes that enjoyment, that ability to enjoy a sporting event. That seems like a real sweet spot to me. If there's the, I don't remember last season there was a the image of a, a Sheffield a Sheffield United supporter reading a book. Why would you go to football and read a book? And it turns out that she was going with someone who was blind and wants to experience the game. So those stories really resonate with people and they thought it was absolutely fantastic that, you know, sport is for all, anything makes it accessible and, and tech, you know, technology for good. So it ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, that's performance. That's uh, fan experience, if you will. Um, we've got another one for me. Yeah, so Strikers Inc., which is a game developer that wants to create, and I'm going to get it right this time, a competitor to EA Sports FC. Competing with EA toast toe is quite difficult. It's got such a head start in the licensing arena, which, because of the exclusive nature of some of those deals, is going to be insurmountable. But Strikers believes it can at least try and compete on gameplay. Again, that's something EA does have a huge head start on but this game's been in development i think since 2016 so they've been really you know putting a lot of resource behind it and they're pitching it i guess as a no-nonsense alternative to ea sports fc they're focusing on the gameplay they say they're opposed to think play to win which i think is a a jive at the ultimate team mode where you can you can spend real world money to get packs to bolster your team that you can then use online so I guess this back to basics approach can win it fans and they believe that there is a desire for an alternative game for people who feel left out by EA's focus on Ultimate Team, which, you know, understandably earns them, you know, billions in revenue. Again, the fact it's been developed so long reflects the scale of the task, but recently it secured quite a bit of funding, um, I think about forty million dollars. One of the investors is Cristiano Ronaldo. So Again, it's been developed for some time. There has been a testing phase. They are looking for a commercial launch and they now have some pretty hefty backing behind it. So I think it's a clear example of a disruptor, something that could provide an alternative route to market for the industry. FIFA have said they want to get into the gaming sphere. Obviously, Konami is there with its own title too. Interesting you've included it. That feels like it's got some fairly strong competition, if not already the strongest in, in EA. It's got some fairly strong competition, but then EA is so dominant that perhaps, you know, again, this is what Star should be doing. They should be disruptive. FIFA has said that it wants to get into the gaming space as part of its direct-to-consumer approach, and it's created a few different titles, none of which are a direct simulation. Konami has eFootball, but they employ a lot of similar things to EA. You know, eFootball is a free-to-play title. You can make purchases within the game. So... What strikers are trying to do is just what it used to be like. You pick a game, you don't have to pay to enjoy the most of it. Um, you know, they want to offer that traditional experience as opposed to this new kind of experience that EAR have been pushing for the past decade. Two more before we um, head to part two of this podcast. Let's do fan engagement, a company called Mikai. And I really hope that's how you pronounce it because it's one of those things that I've never heard say out loud. It was a bit like when Pep Guardiola saw he was being called Fraudiola and called himself Fraudiola. You never want to be, you never want to be, you know, get that one wrong. But I'm pretty sure it's Mikai. And so Mikai started out creating sort of general AI tech and then they 
decided that they would become a bit more you know a bit more specific and they've they've seen you know what what we call the metaverse but again talking about buzzwords fading away metaverse is also one that's fading away because i think the connotation is that it promises much and delivers little so they're focusing on what we now call 3d digital environments which again could be the future of fan engagement if they get the critical mass but what Mikai's is doing is using ai to create these environments not quite digital twins sort of digital twins which are you know like for like but they are working with rights holders to engage their fans in these 3d arenas with avatars and have functionality that can drive revenue and the most notable project Mikai has worked with is the charlotte hornets from the nba on their digital store you know this is a wanted purposes a fully functioning store in the uh in, i'm going to call it the metaverse where you can actually buy products you can try them on your avatar you can interact with their offering so the hope is yes it's going to drive that engagement and perhaps even drive revenue because it gives a new way to interact with merchandise you know i guess trying to meet the fans where they believe that they want to go so i think it is one to watch i think this is a very good example of a very specific narrow use case for what we might consider the metaverse rather than these all-encompassing visions of you know effectively second life for sports when's the last of your uh, of your hyper focus selection steve who is it the final steve selection because you know like alliteration it's sort of performance but also health and that's a company called orico their origins in the i think it's university of galway that's where they're based in ireland and they're combining data science and, and sports science to basically create customized analytics for athletes to drive performance accelerate recovery and prevent injury it's worked with range of athletes you know it's with olympians it's talking with major u.s franchises international governing bodies premier league soccer teams you name it it's done some some close work with them the reason why i've included on this list is their work with female athletes and they, they've worked really hard to address you know gender inequalities in sport and a large part of that is through academic research it's, it's a fraction of what's been done done for men just because women were never considered for these studies and and women often have to use equipment or methods that were designed because of studies predominantly based on men so they've been trying to address this believing that this is a large significant proportion of driving equality in, in sport it's got women's specific products and it's working to address that shortfall in research and technology so i thought that yeah i think that's noteworthy i think it's something we can all get behind now i understand you've spoken to one of the founders of these companies steve do you want to tell me who that is and perhaps introduce that interview? yes so i spoke to gareth lippert from fanhub which you know, it wasn't one of Steve's selections. Oh, that's awkward. Well, I thought I'd save it for the interview without uh, giving away too many spoilers. But again, they would fall into the fan engagement category. And their tagline is they want to be the Strava for sport fans. They want to let fans record their fandom and be rewarded for their loyalty. And interesting that they do use blockchain technology, but that's not their selling point. It's a means to an end rather than the other way around. So yeah, sat down with Gareth and he told us all about FanHub, how he got the idea off the ground, journey towards funding and what's next for the for the company. Okay, let's listen to that interview. So Gareth, firstly, congratulations on being named one of Sports Pro's ideas to invest in now uh, class of 2024. Let's start by talking about your background and how you started FanHub. I've always been passionate about sport. When I was a kid, it was my dream to go to Loughborough University. So that's where my career started, if you like. I got a job in health and fitness after I'd finished my sports science degree. Realised pretty quickly that wasn't for me and I had these 
entrepreneurial urges. So I started my first company, age of 24, pretty much soon out of uni. Didn't really have a clue what I was doing. Made it up as I went along. As part of that journey, I went back to university part-time, studied at Cambridge for executive MBA. And that just gave me a much clearer idea of actually what I was doing, but also what I wanted to do in the future. So when I came to finish up at Sports Extra, I sold it in 2018, which was a children's physical activity provider. I probably should have mentioned that. I launched the first version of FanHub in 2019. Didn't work at all, but I learned a huge amount about launching an app for fans. And I think probably one of the biggest things which I learned was that I spent most of my time investing our attention in the product and actually realized that route to market is far more important. So when we came to launch the second version, Feb 21, um, I had a co-founder by that time as well called Harley Thorne, more about him later maybe, but it went very differently. And thankfully, it's been very, very successful. It is amazing how many conversations I have and they start off with, uh, I went to Loughborough University for for listeners outside the the UK, it's it's very well known for its 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 sports uh, based based degrees in ver- in various disciplines. So, did you have a technological background to begin with? Cause it sounds like your original business was quite different to to what FanHub is. Uh, no, good question. I was a complete novice when I started coming into tech, and although I'd had quite a bit of experience running a business, I was starting from scratch in learning how to build a tech business, and it was a steep learning curve and an expensive one. I didn't have a clue what I was doing again for the second time. But, but obviously you, you recognized a, a gap in the market or a challenge you believe needed to be solved. And so if explaining what FanHub is is exactly and, and what that challenge is trying to solve for both consumers and, and the sports industry, why did you have this idea that you believe that you could help the industry with it? The gap that we saw... And it's a difficult marketplace. It's a very crowded one because there's lots of apps for fans. But the gap we saw was that most of them are about either clubs or players. That's been done hundreds, if not thousands of times before. We thought it'd be really interesting to build a product which enabled fans to collect stats on their own journey as they follow their team. Almost like a Strava for fans in the way that Strava records your data as an athlete and uses that to produce assets that you can share or insight on your own journeys of exercising. We've effectively done exactly the same. And as fans follow their team, we're recording all of that data. So it tracks what stadiums they've been to, how many miles they've traveled, photos of the games that they've been to, how many goals they've seen, even yellow red cards. Why do people use it? We've gone from zero almost three years ago to the day to just this week, we hit our 100,000th user, which is great. But what's really encouraging is the retention rate. And that's the biggest challenge of an app. And we think the reason why fans love using it and keep using it and referring their friends is because we're hitting an unmet need for recognition. Lots of fans, myself included in the past, spend too much time and money traveling up and down the country following their team. No one really cares. So what we've effectively done is provided fans with a tool that collects that data for their own recognition and, and their own satisfaction, but also in a way that they can share about it when you're actually boasting at the pub that what a great fan you are. We've now given you the tools to, to back it up. 
gamification and bragging rights. That's what makes it so appealing to use. Exactly, yeah. To use the tech jargon, if you like it, it's the gamification of fan behavior. And what we've done through that is to create social currency, which people, exactly as you said, can use as bragging rights down at the pub. And there is a, a blockchain element to it, underpinned by Web3 technologies. Can you explain to us why that's necessary and what blockchain can do that conventional technologies can't? Yeah, a couple of things. So the idea which I described is a nice one. Obviously, it's, a, it's, it's great to provide fans with a tool, but there has to be a business case behind it. And we think we've identified something which could get quite exciting. And that is that there's 5 billion sports fans around the world creating all of this content, data, and the attention that goes with it. And at the moment, the majority of that value is captured by media companies. So broadcasters still receive over 80% of the $66 billion worth of sports sponsorship money that's generated every year. Social media platforms are generating and capturing even more value from the conversation that happens online. And that's how it is in the status quo. Sport as a sector and as a vertical is losing an enormous amount of value to those media companies. And we think digital transformation comes in a big way. Sport will be one of the legacy verticals that's impacted in a beneficial way. And what we think that looks like is that users, fans in our case, will have much more self-sovereignty over their own data and content. So effectively, users or fans will be able to own their own data, content, and monetize their attention. So rather than these huge media companies, which you would call centralized entities, if this macro trend of a shift towards decentralization plays out and users, fans are able to monetize their own data, then the best place to be positioned as a startup is being the tool that enables fans to monetize their own data. Blockchain is going to be the facilitator for that. And I think probably the most important differentiator between blockchain and what happens now is that blockchain by nature forces decentralization. It's immutable. So what that means is that users, because it's decentralized, can have trust in our platform that we won't at some point be able to change the rules further down the line. And once we've got 100 million users say, actually, we've decided that now you're not going to be able to monetize your own data because we're going to monetize it. Blockchain doesn't enable you to do that. So effectively, we, as we become more progressively decentralized, we will pass the power and the control to our community. And now we've established the, the idea and the, the core product that you're offering. How did you develop that idea? What was the starting point? What sort of support have you had along the way? Obviously, as you said, you've had experience in business, but how did you get this idea off the ground? And as you say, you know, you sort of pivoted partway through that. Just give us an idea of that journey. Honestly, the catalyst, as well as my own learning between it not working so well and the journey that has happened since we relaunched in Feb 21, was finding a co-founder called Harley Form, whose skill set was a really good complement to mine. So I don't have a technical background, he does. And therefore, we were able to articulate the vision of what we were looking to achieve much more effectively because he could translate that to a team of developers. I wasn't able to do that successfully before. So although I had a vision for what I wanted to achieve, 
it was getting lost in the detail and Harley just has a really good idea and is able to picture exactly how the product should be executed. And as we all know, ideas are easy to come by, execution is difficult. So having him on board made a massive difference. And that's really just what's created the momentum to enable us to get other people in since. And as I'm sure we'll come on to, the fundraise has been a game changer because we've gone from three people in the team as recently as last June to 17 now. So it's been a an interesting journey, which was slow and painful for a number of years. And now it's moving very, very quickly with a different set of challenges. You asked about support. The other support, which has been really helpful in the last year, was that we got a place at the NatWest incubator. I'm a bit old school in my thinking here. I like to have a team right in front of me where we can discuss things face-to-face rather than the kind of Zoom era, which is how FanHub started. Being able to actually be face-to-face in an office in the middle of Bristol was massively helpful and probably kick-started our progression. Just explain what that program allowed you to do what sort of support was was provided by being part of that program? I've actually done a few over the years. Cambridge University have one, which, which was really good, called Accelerate Cambridge. Learned a lot there. I've also done one with Barclays Eagle Labs and then this latest one with NatWest. And all three were pretty similar. I think it helps you think through what the journey might look like and, and get ahead of some of the challenges that you're going to face certainly them encouraging you to communicate what you, your business and be able to pitch it effectively to investors is a massively important part of it. And then as well as the content, it's really being part of that founder community where other people are on the same journey. So the peer-to-peer learning and support that you get through those programs, I think is probably one of the biggest assets as well. So having got the right partner in place, the other support for the incubator program, you obviously decided that you needed funding to help accelerate the idea, get it to make it more of a commercial proposition. So I guess I've sort of answered that already, but like what motivates your desire? Why did you decide that the time was right to find additional funding to take the business to that place? And I guess we all know it's been a challenging macroeconomic time recently as well. The markets have been challenging for some firms to get that financing. So why did you go for funding and what was the process like? Did you encounter any difficulty given those wider challenges? It was always inevitable that funding would be a part of this journey if we were successful and got that far. This is a pretty big idea that we're trying to land. Our total addressable market is 5 billion sports fans around the world. But of course, you can't try and address a market that big in the first instance. So we knew that ultimately funding would be an important part of the journey. But in the first instance, could we build a minimum viable product that actually got some traction in the market that we know and understand, which is a domestic football in the UK? So we're pre-revenue and probably will be at least for another year, but we're comfortable with that because revenue isn't the determining factor on whether we're going to be successful or not. There's far more important metrics such as growth trajectory and are we able to keep the users that are coming in? That's what's going to determine whether this business is successful or not. So we had no option really other than to raise finance because there's no money coming in. It was a really difficult journey because frankly, the only type of investor really that's interested in the project we're developing is based in the US. 
So we spoke with a lot of investors in the UK, but they're just looking for different criteria. They're much more interested in revenue and being close to profitability. We, in the end, were introduced to a group called Blockchain Ventures, who are, are really fascinated by our idea of unlocking the value of fans' data. They only invest in blockchain projects, so they were a natural fit for us. But yeah, it was phenomenally hard. And when you were seeking partners or, or, or investors in that fund, you mentioned that you had to go to the US. Your investor is a blockchain-focused venture. What were your criteria for having for for your investors? Was it in case they had to align with what you're doing, had to believe what you're doing, they had to understand that, again, you are free revenue, you are going to need some time to grow. How did you go about that? I mean, that that is an interesting question, as you alluded to earlier. I mean, the fundraising environment over the last 18 months has probably been as tough as it's ever been. So we had a lot of conversations with investors who were interested, but they just weren't deploying capital because the liquidity in the market wasn't there. So yes, we had a list of what our ideal investor would look like. But frankly, the main criteria was, will they write us a check? Because it comes to a point where you need the money. We had other interest, but blockchain ventures, as soon as we knew they were interested, that was the only deal that we were interested in doing, really. I don't think I've ever seen this happen before, but they effectively wrote us a ticket for the entire round. So they have a 3 million ticket on our pre-seed round, which is pretty unusual certainly in the UK, we're very glad that that one worked out. Yeah, so again, f- financial, cultural, uh, business lines, also, the stars all sorts of aligned on that, on that, on that deal, I, I suppose. Um, you mentioned the importance of peer-to-peer learning, you know, learning from other startups and other technology businesses or even companies at the same stage as yourself. You're based in Bristol, I believe. What's the startup scene like? What's the tech scene like there? And have you spoken to founders in other areas of sports technology that aren't necessarily based in, in the city? What's your what's your network, your community like? I mean, Bristol is a great place to be based. Um, there's two universities there um, and probably a quarter of our team have some connection to the university. So from a recruitment perspective, it's a great place to be. There's some real talent as well from a development perspective. We've got a small team of young developers mainly, and we're pretty excited about them. So had we not been based in Bristol, I think that would have been more of a challenge. In terms of the profile of other startups, there probably isn't such a cluster of the more advanced startups that you might get in London or San Francisco or New York, somewhere like that. It tends to be smaller teams at an earlier stage of their funding. Although having said that, Habu on the same street as us, they've just raised an enormous amount of cash. So there are exceptions to the rule, but mainly it's been smaller companies. We certainly would be one of the biggest in Bristol even now, and we're very early. My network outside of Bristol, yes, we are in touch with a few startups around the world, actually, who have taken an interest in what we're doing. So I'm in regular conversation with some guys in Australia, London, a couple in New York as well. So it's a global network, if you like, particularly when you get into the more nuanced areas of interest, such as sports tech and blockchain in sports tech, which is even smaller than that. And so what's next for FanHub, the product? What's next for FanHub, the business, both in terms of 
how you want to develop yourself and actually, you know, which point will you look to perhaps take the next step, go for that, that seed round, or is it a bit like you've just done one, you don't want to hear about it for a while. What's happening next for you? Well, I'll answer that part of the question first. And I'd heard this could be the case and, and it has certainly panned out that way. And that was that a year ago, we were struggling to even get a call with some of the VCs that we wanted to speak to. And then you raise some funding, obviously word gets around and we're now getting a lot of inbound interest, even from people that didn't want to speak to us a year ago. So it has flipped. I think that's probably a bit of encouragement for any founders out there that's struggling to raise your first institutional check. Once you get one, the balance of power does shift a little bit. So we will be raising again, probably within the next six to 12 months, just because that's taking shape a lot faster than we would have imagined. We've got plenty of runaway in the bank, but because we have the momentum, I think we'll probably take advantage of that position. The other aspect from a business development perspective to talk about is that up until this point, we've been working out what the playbook looks like. How do we get in front of fans? How do we retain them? How do we build our economy around the user? And we've we've pretty much worked all that aspect out now. So the next challenge is how do we integrate what we've learned and partner with football clubs in our current context. Ultimately, it will be other sports and other countries as well. But at the moment, we're focused on UK football. So we have six partnerships being announced in the next month or so with football clubs in the UK. So we're pretty excited about that. Some big ones as well. Hopefully, we'll catch some of your listeners by surprise on what's coming up. But the next part of the journey is working with them and integrating our product and are thinking into helping those football clubs engage with their fans better. Well, we look forward to seeing what you achieve over the next 12 months. Gareth, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. That was a uh, really fascinating interview. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Have we got any other tech content going out this week? Yep, we've got the Tech Investor Roundtable, which... Uh, it sees us, you know, gather together some some notable figures from the, the investment scene to talk about trends, uh, patterns, both in terms of technology and financing. And it's really worth a read. Some really fascinating insight from people who really know what they're doing. So I'd urge you to look out for that later this week. Lovely stuff. All right, Steve. Uh, until next time, thank you very much.